Hello and welcome everyone to the Better Faster Further podcast. This is episode number seven. My name is Regan Bach. I'm one of the uh, co-founders and managing partners of Better Faster Further. Super excited to be here. Our company specializes in helping organizations, teams, and leaders accelerate peak performance uh, because we believe every organization has the capacity to improve. We really love nothing more than helping leaders become better leaders. We love creating high-performing teams and our secret sauce is in helping uh, companies scale. Each episode of our podcast features just truly inspiring stories from bright business minds. Uh, we've had some accomplished athletes, Adam Odosky, who's on the uh, podcast today with me being one of them, and leaders who are, who are changing our beliefs in what's possible. We provide insights, tools, and takeaways to help listeners like you explore their true potential and go after their best. We're super excited to be here. Uh, we expect nothing less uh, with our conversation with Mr. Ben Edwards. Ben, happy to have you on the show today. Hello, good morning. How are you and where are you? Hey, Regan. I'm pretty well. Uh, and I'm joining from Evergreen, Colorado in the Rockies. Another Colorado boy. I am yes. in Durango, Colorado, and very fond of the state. We've also got my colleague, Adam Odosky, who is posted up in Salida, Colorado. How are you, Adam? I'm doing great. Good to see you guys this morning. I love it. You, you, it looks like you're having some sun there. I, we're definitely having some inclement weather. We're expecting kind of Stormageddon over the next 48 hours. Yep. We've got, we've got sun today. We, we got, a, I don't know, four inches or so in town a couple of days ago, but the mountains have been getting consistent smaller storms but consistent and so it's good it's finally winter it's happening yeah my mom i talked to her the other day said they were getting like 12 inches of snow 18 inches of snow so that's awesome and i expect more to more is going to come after this storm moves through here so they, they were saying 10 to 15 inches of rain in 48 hours wow holy cow yeah so we we shall see um well ben super excited to have you here i really want to get into it we were chatting before we, we started the podcast, and you have done a lot of things, my friend. You, you've been a busy boy. Where did you originally, where, where did you uh, graduate uh, school from? I graduated from Oxford back in 1991. I, I studied English language and literature, which was the, uh, the canon, as we call it. Yes. The canon starts at about 850 AD, and you have to learn how to read uh, Anglo-Saxon. And it ends at about 1920. That's about as, as recent as Oxford was willing to canonize. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And uh, I'll, I'll pass the mic to you and Adam here shortly. But from there, you have, I mean, had kind of a storied career as a reporter for Euro Money. You were a reporter and editor at The Economist for almost a decade. Super curious about that. Then moved on to IBM, had a director role there. You were an EVP at The Economist Group, moved into a, a series of roles at, at IBM and PayPal. Uh, so very curious how you made those kind of leaps and, and some of the key takeaways and, and lessons learned from there. You were a partner for three and a half years at Edwards & Sender. Let's see here, worked at Gather. You're an executive coach and do a lot of leadership development and podcasts and speaking um, admittedly, Ben works uh, with us at Better Faster Further as one of our senior leadership coaches, and he owns a company called Full Sequence. Which, again, we're gonna we're gonna hand it to Ben to share a little bit more about his background and some of the lessons learned. Um, but Adam, we were first introduced 
to Ben from you. So maybe you can give us a little background of how you two are connected. You bet. So as you guys know, I've, I've had a, a series of small businesses in the past. And when I was transitioning my last business, I had thought about getting into coaching and consulting as my next sort of professional path. And I was talking with somebody that, that Ben and I share in our network. And I was asking him, you know, is there anybody that you can recommend that I could talk to who is a coach or a consultant? And they recommended Ben. And so I reached out to Ben. We set up a 30-minute Zoom. And I feel like we connected really well. Ben had a lot of great insight. He was super generous with his time. I'm sure we went over 30 minutes. Uh, but he had a lot of great recommendations to follow. And so from that point, I, I sort of just stayed in contact with Ben, you know, kind of updating him since he was a, a pivotal player in my transition from entrepreneur to coaching consultant. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and, and here we sit today. So, you know, really the universe lining up to, you know, to sort of support that path, which is really cool. But I'd, I'd love to turn it over to Ben to, as you mentioned, Regan, he's, he's got a great background and he's also a, a wonderful person, a great conversationalist. And for those of you who are listening. He's a wonderful writer. And I would suggest subscribing to his newsletter that comes out on every Sunday. It's called Bearings, but he'll, he'll share more about that. Anyway, Ben, if you want to you know, give some background, professional, personal, take it wherever you want. Uh, we, we'd love to share more about you. It's been a, a kind of an unusual career, that's for sure. But it, it does make sense to me. As, as Regan was saying, I spent uh, the first part of it as a journalist, mostly as a foreign correspondent. First based in London, traveling around the world, and I got to see the world and learn about how the world works from a pretty early age. And then based in Japan, and and then I actually came to the U.S. as a foreign correspondent, as you said, Regan, with the with the Economist magazine. I was the American business editor uh, here for four years, and my goal was to travel to every state and and write a story from every state. And I think I got about halfway through, but I'd still like to visit every state. It's such an amazing country, such a diverse place. So that was kind of the first part of my career. And that was fun until I got kind of bored and disillusioned with it, with journalism. And I think my, actually my, it's a kind of a different story, but my disillusion with the media in general has just deepened, um, actually. Uh, what, I, what I kind of saw then has just gotten worse, I think. I just sort of jacked it in one day. It was just like, I'm done. Uh, and and I really didn't know what I wanted to do or even who I was much because I'd sort of defined myself so much as a, as a foreign correspondent, right? You know, I was sort of like, I was really into that whole idea of myself and, until I wasn't. And so I, I jacked it in and I joined IBM. I had another job lined up at Microsoft in, on the West Coast. And it chose IBM, I think, because it was just closer. We were living in Connecticut at the time. And then started uh, sort of about 14 years inside of mostly pretty large corporations. IBM was uh, 450,000 people uh, when I joined. And, uh, you know, as a foreign correspondent, you're like a, you're a team of one, basically, right? There's a, you know, there's, there's you, there's, a, there's a, a computer, there's... And then there's an editor somewhere else, <laughs> right? And that's kind of it. Uh, so I had to learn all sorts of new skills. When you made the leap from from being a reporter and editor into to IBM, that, that was still. I, I remember you kind of did two stints at IBM. If I if I'm not, but the first one was it really more around like 
marketing and communications or was it in the same? It was in communications and it was more focused on writing, at least to begin with. So, you know, I wrote for the CEO, Sam Parmesano, and I wrote speeches for him and articles for him. And I wrote like annual reports and all the different stuff that companies. I wasn't much into it though. I felt like, you know, I, the pinnacle of writing I'd already achieved, if you know what I mean. And, um, it felt a little sort of second best. So I was kind of keen to move out of that and into other things. And I, I caught the technology bug. Um, back then it was social media and it was social media inside of the company. Uh, so it was wikis, blogs, podcasts, all inside of the firewall. IBM at the time was uh, leading the world in that. And it was just very, very interesting. It was sort of, you know, it was policy. It was trying to understand what value it had and how to direct it or marshal it or orchestrate it better. Is that where you coined the, the IBM Podfather? The Podfather, yeah. I was the Podfather at one point. It was very, very early on in podcasting. And, you know, if you catch these waves really early, I mean, you can be big, right? I mean, you're going to be big. Right, you know, no matter no matter how good you are, you're going to be big if you get you catch at the right moment. My podcast, which was called IBM and the Future of, was number fifty on iTunes. It was we were bigger than Bill O'Reilly. That was my that was my brag. I remember going to conferences. I worked for a company called Mariposa Leadership in San Francisco for for a long time, and myself and the CEO would go to these conferences. Like sometimes at a at a booth, it sounds cheesy, but it was actually pretty cool. You met a lot of neat people. But it was when people were were selling podcast ideas. They're like, "You need to do this. Like, this is gonna be huge." And we were like, eh, "I don't know. Like, I get it, but I don't really get it. Like, will people really listen to it?" And I mean, that was a long time ago. So yeah, I I, I love it. I mean, I love the I love the homemade nature of it. Right, like the uh, it's like the old kind of ham radio stuff and. Um, uh, I love the authenticity of it. Um, I think that's what really people key into, right? It's just, you know, people shooting the ship with each other. And um, and we crave that these days, right? There's so much uh, inauthenticity in the world. So that was that. And then, uh, yeah, I went back to The Economist. I ran the digital media business for a while and learned about running a P&L, which was interesting and difficult and challenging and Really, where I first started grappling with management and leadership, I had a team of about, I don't know, 25, 30 people across the world, actually. It was a global business. And that was fun. Went back to IBM and did a bunch of leadership positions in marketing communications, really focused on driving technology intensive, software intensive change. This was the start of B2B demand generation, marketing automation, CRM that sort of space. And that's kind of where my consulting interest is focused. Just to be clear on that, on that leap. So in 2010, you were the VP of digital strategy and development for about two years or almost three. Yeah. Sounds like then you were the chief communications officer for two years. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. That little blip on the screen. That, That was, that was 2013, 2014 ish. And then you were the uh, VP of global digital marketing for another year plus. So that was a total of like five and a half year stint in that tour at IBM. That's right. Punctuated in the middle. Like, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I was uh, 
Ginny Rometty's uh, chief communications officer for a little under two years. That was a difficult job, I tell you. That was, I think that was my, the most difficult job I've ever had. Very, very interesting job. Right at the top of a very large corporation, not, not necessarily as a principal. As a chief communications officer, you're more of an advisor. You're like an internal consultant or actually coach to a certain extent as well. You're coaching the C-suite, right? It was a super interesting uh, perch uh, for, a, for a little while there, but pretty, pretty exhausting, I can tell you. <laughs> ben, I'm so curious. Like you, I mean, going from a foreign correspondent and then, you know, sort of working your way up into these large leadership positions, was this sort of like a, a you, you, you had some curiosity around a different position or some interest in, in doing something new and you applied for a job and you got the job and you learned by doing, or was there a, you know, was there any education that backed up the progress or how did you make that? Well, I can tell you the, um, and I do tell this story to people I coach and, uh, a lot because I, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I, I kind of missed out on middle management. I got thrown from basically no management expertise or skills whatsoever into a pretty senior role. That was the one of the economists running the um, digital media business, which was a, you know, it was a very, very, very challenging role. And I was just awful at it. I was just terrible. I was highly emotionally reactive. At one time, there was one guy on the sales team who just, he just persisted on selling things I hadn't built um, and <laughs> giving me deadlines. Were very and I went down to the sales floor one day and I completely lost my shit. I just absolutely lost my shit in front of about 50 people. And uh, the CEO called me in and said, Ben, we're, we're getting you a coach. <laughs> we're getting you a coach, Ben. And before they got me a coach, they got me, um, they got me a psychologist. I had a meeting with HR, and then I had a meeting with a psychologist. She spent a couple of days with me, uh, she, and, uh, and she wrote this report, and I, I read it, and it was, it was, there was some shameful stuff in there. And um, I took it back to my wife, <laughs> and she read it, and she said, I said, what do you think? She said, well, they nailed you. <laughs> <laughs> so at which point, I kind, of, I kind of like just sort of gave up. Right, I gave up resisting uh, looking at myself. Traumatic ego death, and gave up that resistance in looking at myself. And uh, I had a I had a coach, Emily, uh, for two years. At that point, I was about thirty five, thirty six, something like that. And she just she was just miraculous as far as I was concerned, and really started my journey of growth and that habit of introspection, which is. As you guys know, so so powerful. So Adam, that was kind of like that was really, you know, that was it's a very clear moment in in my life when I look back that that moment of accepting help. I guess that's what really kind of powered right my my executive career, if you like, was you know trying to understand how to be a better person and therefore a better leader. And uh, start working on, you know, I, I think of it really, I thought of it really as creating environments in which people can thrive. I came to understand, you know, a very kind of 
I could see it very clearly, a very direct link between, you know, fulfillment, happiness, and productivity. And I do see other leaders who see that same thing. But I do think they're kind of a little bit in the minority, you know, that uh, a lot of leadership defaults to numbers and pressure and, right, uh, and that sort of thing. We beat that drum pretty hard, Ben. I just love that you said that because, again, some of these things, they when I say them, I, I, I'm like, do people think this is totally cheesy and cliche? Because because it it sounds like it when the words come out of my mouth, but but it's it, it it's it's the truth, and and like I and we very firmly believe it that you know the role of a of a leader is to create an environment that's conducive for their people to do their best work. You know, pressure is good, constraints can be positive, but like when it's just enduring, you know, pressure and critique, uh, it, it becomes really tough. And I, I agree with, I think, I, I forget the three kind of legs of the stool that you just mentioned, but as a leader to kind of get out of the way and, and focus on creating those environments and, and to let those people shine is a very pivotal mindset shift for people. What, and when you see that light bulb go off, it's like, holy shit, like now I do. Right, it's not all about me anymore, and it, it it sounds simple, and it is in theory, but in practice, it's 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 brutally hard at times. Well, I I kind of had fulfillment and happiness on one side, and productivity on the other. If you see what I mean, right? That it's the, it's the connection between fulfillment and happiness on the one hand, and productivity on the other. Like as a as a leader, right? You're you're hired to get more out of the organization, right? Yeah, to produce, right? It's all about performance. Well, well, what is your theory of performance, right? And and so that's my theory of performance. That's the kind of theory of performance. And it's not just a theory, right? I mean, you know, I've learned over the years all these heuristics around, you know, how to set up teams and how to create environments that teams can thrive in and, right, how to encourage people and, you know, how information should flow and, you know, except, you know, psychological safety and well, there's just a whole bunch of things inside of there, right? It's not just theory, it's practice. But the practice is driving productivity through fulfillment and happiness, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I also sometimes look at it that productivity is an outcome of fulfillment and happiness. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it, right? We, we, we don't set the, the, the near goal as productivity, we set the near goal as providing people an environment they can grow, they can they can fulfill themselves at their best at work, whatever that is, right? We we observe them, we we put them in the right spots with the right people, we change them out if it's not working, right? We give them opportunity. You know, Regan, you were talking about pressure. I think like the one 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 thought I have about pressure is that sort of the equivalent of of pressure, if you like, under this kind of style of leadership is expectation, right? That I have, I have the highest expectations for people, right? You know, the highest, I, I, I want them to be at their very, very best. And people respond to that, right? They, they, they absolutely viscerally want to, they, they want, they see that belief and they want to aspire to it. Look, happiness in my book, happiness and, and, you know, maybe more on the fulfillment side is the desire to feel like you are being challenged, like you are growing, like you are, you know, 
And, and the irony in that is that that doesn't mean that things need to be easy. It doesn't mean that you always have to be nice. Like sometimes being direct and giving people the critical feedback, you know, might not make them happy in the moment, but it's, it's, it's pushing them. It's applying pressure for them to be better. And those expectations. And I think as a leader, setting expectations, being clear on what you expect of people, being, being willing to hear what they expect of you. That's creating an environment that can allow people to do their best work. It, you know, but 90% of the world operates under a different mindset where it's like, we avoid conflict. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. Like you have to respect the boss. And so feedback gets stalled and you, whatever it may be. But, um, I, you know, I, I love it. And I very much adhere to, I think, a very similar philosophy when it comes to the generalization of what quality leadership looks like. So, yeah, I totally agree on conflict. It's not, it's, uh, there's plenty of conflict in this style of leadership, right? You know, just like as a good coach is going to call me out on, on my own BS, right? I'm, I'm going to call other people out on theirs. There's a big difference between doing that because you are trying to undermine me and climb the political ladder at IBM versus, no, I'm calling you on your BS because you're not performing as well as I know you can and should. And because you're a weak link in this chain right now, like we as a team, we as a company aren't able to achieve our desired outcomes. Like that's a different dialogue, right? That comes from a place of positivity and support as opposed to undermining a negative. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you want the best for people and you see them, if you see them show up at work day after day and they're, they're not committed, they're checked out, you want to, you got to call them on it, right? It's like, what are you doing with your life? You know, this is a, this is a voluntary arrangement, uh, right? I mean, you come to work on a voluntary basis and we employ you on a voluntary basis, right? What are you doing wasting your life? Something that you're not, you're not committed to, you're not into, you know? And that conversation becomes a lot easier when, when the leader actually truly sees what the person is capable of, truly sees them at their best, because if they see that, then that person can have trust in that, in their leader in that it's coming from a good place. You know, they see in me that I'm capable of so much more versus, Hey, you know, you're dropping the ball, you suck, whatever. Um, it's more of what's going on. You are, you are so much greater than what you're showing up as. And I think that's oftentimes our role as coaches is to, to see the best possible version of the clients that, that we work with and to help them be those people. Totally agree. Yeah. I was speaking to a buddy yesterday who's, who's um, in a sales role, but is, you know, just in kind of a, a pickle at work. And he was articulating kind of his, his situation and stuff. And I could just tell there was like his, where his mind was, was this like kind of negative, reactive place. And, and, and the analogy I was using for him was like, dude, you know, you're just under the waterline and all you're seeing is like the, like the surface and you need to get a, a breath of air, but it's very frantic and you're thrashing. Like you're, you're one inch away from being above the waterline where you can actually breathe again, but your mindset has you chasing the, the, the dark and treading the water. And so, you know, basically in that moment saying, let's simplify this. Let's focus on the positives. Let's focus on what you have control over. And instantly you could just see his demeanor like tilting the other way. It was just interesting to see how you know, these work environments can, can get people spun up in very bizarre ways and they don't even see it. And so it's, it's interesting. I use that, that story because it just happened yesterday. And because it's like so subtle that like when you see somebody 
who's kind of going rogue and who's like like lost the plot, but you see it and they don't to like bring them back in. That that, that it takes courage to be able to deliver that feedback, but it was like you know a, a breath of fresh air and a splash of cold water in the same the same moment. So yeah, but how nice for the person receiving that feedback to to have somebody on their side that that says, look, like you you've got this, and here's why. If this is the right person for you, the right mentor, advisor, coach, colleague, whatever, friend, and you can actually take their feedback to heart and believe it, it's like you can absorb confidence from them, what they see in you, and and make that next step, right? That's the value of, of going at it together versus going at it alone. Yeah. The, the word that was coming up for me was courage. Like the, you know, a good, a good coach, just like a great, a great leader, right? Gives someone courage right to look at the world in a different way or 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 uh or really really take on what they want for themselves right mm-hmm. i think a good a good coach and a good leader one of the same in many regards is sometimes needs to be a cheerleader like you can do this i believe in you and then sometimes needs to be like a, a kick in the ass right like you need it's like you are uncomfortable but I, I i need to nudge you off this cliff because you will be okay so it depends on which version is showing up in that moment. But well, so we we you 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 had another five and a half year tour at IBM, lots of experience. You're you're at the top of the food chain, like having these challenging roles, and then we get the PayPal chapter. How did that come about? IBM, the, the practice there was basically you get you get sort of sent to Siberia. And you don't get fired. You just get kind of maimed or wounded. I used to you know, joke that, that. Actually, I said, <laughs> it's like I was talking to my boss uh, once and uh, we were talking about the headquarters in Armand, New York. And it's like three stories high. And uh, we were talking about, well, that's because when they push you off the top, you just get, you just have a bad injury. You don't get, you don't actually die. Right. <laughs> that was the practice there. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend, you know, I was, I was never a lifer, right? You know, there's still that culture at IBM, uh, probably much less so today, but there still was back, back when I was there of, you know, a lot of people spent 35, 40 years there. And yeah, you, you, off you go to Siberia, you spend some time in chilly weather, right? And then they bring you back eventually when you've done your penance. So I was always curious about the West Coast. I was like, I had this sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an idealist at heart, I think. And I had this idea of, you know, well, they must have got things organized so much better than the East Coast. They're younger. They've got all this technology. They've got these amazing companies growing up, right? Amazon was kicking IBM's ass in cloud computing. So I thought, I really want to go to the West Coast. That was my goal. That was my desire. So that landed the job at PayPal. And funnily enough, found all exact same human issues uh, you know, inside of PayPal and the Valley uh, as on the East Coast and pretty much everywhere else I've worked. That my, my general kind of heuristic about work is that it just doesn't go well. Um, it's hard. It's hard to make it go well, right? And if you kind of just walk around the company and ask people how well work's going and, and you do it in a, in a sort of an innocent and, and a way that encourages honest responses they'll tell you and they'll share with you that and on the whole work doesn't go well uh so there's plenty of there's plenty of work for folk who who are there to help work go better it's interesting that you say that because 
the one consistent thing about organizations is they're filled with people and people are super, I, I, I love them, but they're sloppy. They're messy. They're dynamic. They've got egos and deaths and weddings and goals and desires, conflict avoidance and different communication styles. And you throw 10 people into a company trying to get something done, let alone 10,000 or 450,000. And, and, you know, if you knew what went on in the mind of any single one of those people, you, you, you'd put them in the, you know, in the crazy house, let alone all of those people. And so, you know, the goals aside and the process aside, those are critical components, but then you just like, how do you deal with the people side of stuff? And, and that is the one consistency in every single organization. You know, uh, something was coming out as you were talking, Regan, was I, I read the other month uh this there was something from i subscribed to the harvard business review and they sent me these emails and there was one there was one email that was talking about it analyzed topics that the harvard business review covers over the last 80 years or something and basically what it showed was that marketing strategy sales topics on the rise right over the last 70 years consistently Topics involving operations, how to run a company, right, on the decline. And they celebrated this. They were like, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, everyone's much more interested. I'm not looking at this with horror, thinking, well, this is, this is like, this is the problem, right? We've got the tops of these companies floating off into the stratosphere with the McKinsey's and BCG's of this world making, you know, very, very smart strategy. And who's paying attention to how the company's getting run? What's actually happening on the shop floor? You know, a lot of these, a lot of these places, I think if you went into the C-suite and you asked them, let's, let's go, let's go find, let's go find a team that's doing some actual productive work here. They wouldn't even know where to go. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I absolutely think you're right. And I mean, we, we wrote an article years ago on, you know, how organizations are filled with people and people are batshit crazy. And, and just like, you know, it's kind of inflammatory or alarmist, but it's, it's more of this notion that just to your point, you know, the, the management of the people is such a challenging thing. And most people really suck at it. And, and I don't even know if they're paying attention to it, to your point. Like if you're like, okay, let's go. Where's the productivity coming from? You're probably going to get a lot of head scratches, especially in a big organization. Yeah, I think that you know my my sort of uh, mental uh, image is like these these strategy decks get hurled out out of the C suite into the organization, and they're off to the next strategy deck. They they've assumed that you know this thing's going to get executed brilliantly, and you know, and it's a shit show. <laughs> that really dovetails nicely, sorry Adam, with with kind of the theme that we wanted to get into around just like org change, right? Like you you. These these execs, especially in a larger organization, make plans and like spend a lot of time and energy and money and resources on coming up with the plans and whether they're good or, or bad plans, you know, to be, to be determined. However, whether it's the best plan or a horrible plan, how that gets driven through the organization is, is done so poorly. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, with OKRs and different goal implementation models and how does feedback get back up into the system? I mean, that's where we spend the vast majority of our time working with larger companies and larger teams is just how does work actually get done in this place? And we'll go in and literally ask that. Like, and what we find is there's very few people who are truly the super connectors in the business that like are the, the, the flywheel for how things get done. 
and 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 you know everything else is kind of orbiting around those key people or teams. Yeah, book change. I mean that that was certainly the the predominant theme of my corporate career, right? Uh, was was you know landing inside companies where change was an imperative, right? IBM and cloud, the economist and digital media, right? And, you know, shift from a print magazine to, right, uh, digital ads and digital media. Um, and PayPal, uh, which, which was, a, you know, is a payments utility, right? In, in an absolute roiling sea of competition and change, right? From every direction, from, you know, operating system makers, from device manufacturers, from banks, from, right, all sorts of different directions that, you know, pretty much every company you go in, there, there's uh, changes at the top of the agenda, right? Unless you're super, super, super young and you're, you're the disruptor, right? If you, if you were to get a collection of CEOs in the room and you were to ask them, right, what is, what is the most important thing you got to do or what is the, right, what is the most critical thing to your success or, even what are you most frustrated about? You probably change, I'm guessing, would you know come rise to the top of that list or close to the top of that list. I was doing a lot of work at PayPal and eBay in the same window of time. I'd have to look back exactly when that were, but that was you know the the Meg Whitman days and the John Donahoe. You know, it was like up and coming, and we did a lot of work in uh, what was his name Bob Swan's org on the on the controller finance. But um, it was fascinating. That was that was before, during, and after the the eBay PayPal integration, which was a big thing. And then they had to like decouple it later. There was a lot of org change happening in that environment. Also with eBay at the time being the parent company, like you know merging with PayPal, acquiring it for lack of a better term, and then like unwinding it at the same time. It was uh, I mean, it was a fascinating, just dynamic place to. In that time, let alone the market and the kind of the ecosystem it just existed, as you as you said earlier. Yeah, the uh, when I was there, which was a little later, it was 2015 to 2017, that kind of time frame. It was about growth and um, the product engine, right? I I worked in product management there as a VP in product management there, and there was a lot of frustration at the top of the company with essentially the the ability of the product. And engineering, software engineering teams to innovate in the core product to drive growth. And sort of, you know, as I was looking at it, it was, you know, as always, it was, well, partly it was about how those teams were set up, right? Which was highly functionally siloed, right? Design and we had engineering and we had product management, we had the content teams and they were all, right? But the product required all of those folks to work together. So it's partly about that. It was partly about right the, the leadership behaviors, right? And um, there was a lot of uh, sort of top-down, um, you know, roadmap creation and pushing things down into the team, right? Which basically, kind of, to my mind, discouraged initiative, right? Discouraged entrepreneurialism, right? You got given the work, you got, you know, here it is on your plate, off you go, right? So. As usual, this sort of combination of things work at work. You end up empowering people to be doers, but not critical thinkers and problem solvers, right? Right. Give a cross-functional team, give a small cross-functional team an engaging problem to solve. 
and get out of their way. Back to our earlier, you know, conversation about leadership. Yeah, that's scary for folks. So, understandably so, because I think it cuts across a lot of old patterns of behavior. If we really want to get into it, that's more from like the the factory manufacturing mindset of like old school organizations, right? Which is like you do this thing and you repeat it over and over and you get really good at it and you just crank this thing out. Now you've got, you know, historical mindsets and behaviors and organizational systems implemented in a world that requires lots of cross-functional collaboration. And like, I can't tell you, like that's a bad word in certain companies, cross-functional collaboration. They're like, dude, F you. You know, not because they don't want it, but it's so hard to get done well to get these different teams to partner and share and, 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 and support each other. Yeah. You mentioned manufacturing. Arguably, you know, the, the sort of uh, model of this uh, actually came out of manufacturing from Toyota, right? In the, the Toyota way in the 1950s, right? Where they basically, they, what they were looking to do was build uh, an organization that learned on the line, right? On the manufacturing line, and they they did it by grouping machines together into these things called one piece flow cell, and then they would put um, the line operator against all of the different machines and ask them to optimize right that part of the line as a totality versus sit in front of a machine and right operate that machine and perform that task. So they get their own little purview of the line and they're asked to problem solve the line and. You know, the other innovate, or they had so many different innovations, but another key innovation they had was the line, you know, the line operator could stop the line. Anyone on the line could stop the line, right? Pull the cord and stop the line. And the line was frequently stopped because the line frequently broke, right? Because there was all sorts of innovation happening on the line all the time. But there was this sort of sense of urgency and autonomy and ownership around the line, right? That, that the, the, the line operator would then get back on it and wanted to get it restarted as quickly as possible, right? And pull the cord and off we go again. And, you know, when there's these methods first came to the US, like GM, they could, they, they couldn't get their heads around it, right? They were like, what the hell are they, what, what do you mean? Like anyone can stop the line? That's a lot of power for somebody way down in the food chain, right? That's scary. What, what, what do you guys think what were they were most afraid of when that, when that theory came to the US? What, why do you think that? we were so resistant to a, to provide that level of autonomy? That's a good question. One thought is that the culture was antagonistic, right? You know, management, labor, right? Uh, or capital and labor even, right? And unionized, right? And so there was a lack of trust, right? It, you know, it was, a, it was a, um, an antagonistic relationship. And, you know, Toyota had none of that. There was a high degree of trust uh, between, like, the line worker and the chairman of the company. In fact, the, cha- the chairman of Toyota famously said, like, you know, the, a- anyone on the line has as much authority to change the process in this company as I do. So it was just a, it was a, the culture was set up, I think, in a, in a different way. If I kind of extrapolate that to kind of some of my own corporate experiences as a consultant and working inside companies, right? I, I do think there's, you know, that lack of trust. You know, I mean, you know, unions have, are on the decline, but the tr- the lack, the, the distrust is still there, right? There's this, uh, there's a gap, right, um, between, you know, the leadership and, and uh, the rank and file. And so if you flip that on its head, 
how do you how do you build trust, Ben? How do how do these organizations, these teams, these leaders build trust? How do we bridge that gap using trust as the bridge? I think it goes back to the kind of leadership culture we were talking about earlier. The the you know the kind of leadership you know I call it servant leadership, right? I am in your service, and and you you might say, well, gosh, that that, that sounds you know a lowly position to lead from, but it, I think that's exactly what it is. I'm putting myself in service of your best self the part of you that i want to show up every day and do your very very best work right perform at the very highest i know you can right when it's genuinely and authentically adopted you you as the person being led you're going to feel that i have your interests at heart you may not like some of the things (laughs) i'm calling you on right (laughs) But you're still going to, right, if begrudgingly maybe, right, believe I have your interests at heart. Mm-hmm. I think, and Ben, you may correct me on this, but I, I read that book by, I think it's Robert Greenleaf around servant leadership yeah. back in the day. And yeah, It was really cool because it kind of codified and, and adds some tangibility or language to like what that really meant. And I, I think he was uh, worked, he came through the rank at AT&T. And like became a, a key leader there and then, and then came up with this concept of servant leadership. But it really is like in service to the people. And if you think about that, that is such a 180 degree mental pivot from how a lot of people think about leading, right? Like lead from the front. I have the ideas. I need to be the problem solver. I need to be the smartest in the room. You know, and you kind of create the shadow or wake behind you. Whereas the servant leadership one is like, behind the people pushing them forward or creating space or whatever it is and again like however you want to create the metaphor or the the mental model it's it's a big leap for people to make but but totally possible but it 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 requires especially in an organization that isn't holistically adopting it you really stand out like if you're a leader on a team that thinks in this way it's great when you're on that team it's hard to partner with other people because they don't and i advocate for it 100 percent I just think it gets real in the trenches of work. You know, you're, you you feel like you're pushing a boulder uphill or swimming upstream on something that has a lot of momentum behind it, you know? Yeah. There's thinking in that way, right? You know, being a servant leader, and then there's the behaviors or the actions that go along with it. And we've talked a little bit about some of them, but what do you guys think are some of those key behaviors or key actions that that a servant leader can adopt or embrace? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, we we talked about one, which was sort of this this expectation mindset, right? Expecting the best of people. Oh, here's another one that comes to mind. This also comes out of um, you know ad, agile methods, which I've been studying, practicing, coaching, using for since like 2007. Now, they're big on servant leadership, right? And I learned this through the practice of agile methods that. Really, it's about, um, you know, the role of the leader is um, in good measure about impediment removal, right? Yeah. So, so what does that actually take in practice? Well, it, let's, let's, let's take the example of an agile team, right? So we've got, you know, seven to nine people or five to seven people. How many you got, right? Maybe it's a cross-functional team. There's some engineers in there. There's got, got some QA people. We got some, you got a product manager, right? You got some design, maybe some content, whatever it is, right? That'll be a kind of classic West Coast team. Their job, right? Or part of their job collectively 
is to talk about surface and prioritize their impediments as a team. As a leader sitting outside that team, right, you want to hear about their impediments, right? That's the first thing I would say is you want to be curious about what is impeding that team because some of the impediments, they're going to be able to solve themselves, right? Uh, some might require some kind of intervention, back to your point, Regan, about messy human stuff that's going on inside of that team, <laughs> which it almost always is, right? <laughs> uh, and some, they, you know, if, if they're in an organization that has more than one team, right, some, some of the things that are impeding them are going to be sitting outside of their team and outside of their control, right? And so as a leader, right, what we want to do is we want to listen to their impediments the things that we believe they can solve themselves, we're going to push back onto the team. Say, oh, yeah, you guys can solve that yourselves. Maybe you need some help or coaching or facilitation, right? But that's within your control. And the things that they can't solve themselves, you want to take on for them. And, you know, I've never quite been able to do this inside of a company or uh, as a consultant help a company do this. But my vision is that if, if you had a system where every team was surfacing to their leader and every leader was surfacing to their leader, then you could scale that system, right? And at the top of the company have a very, very good view of the impediments. And the impediments really are the things that the leadership team at the top should be working on, right? I, I think you said that really well. And I, I I mean I couldn't agree more. It's 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 awesome to think about that that impediment removal, which comes back to like creating environments that are conducive for that type of information to flow, which requires good feedback in the system. And one of the, you know, my, my answer to your question, Adam, which, which Ben just touched on briefly was, I think as a leader, like the modality that you should be in is, is leading through inquiry versus leading through advocacy. Like if you're constantly curious and constantly asking questions and constantly pulsing and getting information to like flow through you to you and then through you, i.e. up the organization and out, you're much more likely to be able to successfully deliver the promise than not. Whereas I think a majority of people lead through advocacy, which is like, here's what I need done. Here's the idea that's coming from the top. I need to push this through. And again, it's a 180 degree you know, pivot from the mindset and the behaviors that drive that. But, you know, what, what Ben said, impediment removal is probably, you know, the number one, if not top three kind of ways that you can get at this thing day in and day out, because there's no shortage of them, right? It's like, how do I, sometimes it's a gap that you need to build a bridge across. And sometimes it's an overlap where there's redundancy, but like, you won't know that unless you've got people kind of reporting where they're stubbing their toe along the way. And the two words that you guys said that I think are, are really important attributes of this style of leadership, this servant leadership, are curiosity and listen. Yeah, those are good. Th those are, and, and those are words from, from both of you. And, and what I hear in listening to you both talk about this style of leadership is not just creating the environment for, for people to be successful, but empowering them to be successful as well. So here's the environment that you need. And you have everything you need. And if you don't, let me know how I can support you in that. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're there to ask questions, to listen to their needs, to really support them. And I, yeah, that's a pivotal shift in, you know, the telling or the directing or. And, and again, like people, uh, people sometimes confuse this and think it's like a, a soft form of leadership. You know, there's not, there's not enough, right. 
well, there's not enough pressure. And there's actually, it's incredibly demanding. If you think about, you know, we talked, we talked about the expectation on the individual, right? I come to you and I, and I expect you to be right. Uh, performing to your very best self because I believe in you. Right. All right. Well, think about also the impediment removal we talked about, right? There's that, there's right. I've just removed all your impediments. What, what is my expectation? You know, uh, I expect you to be performing better. Right. Um, you just told me your number one impediment. I just removed it. Uh, give me your next one. Right. It's <laughs> right. It's a, it's a pretty demanding form of leadership. <laughs> what I like about that is like the baseline expectation is your very best. Yeah. Your very best. But that's the baseline, meaning that you see in them that they're capable of so much more than. Well, they could surprise you. Right. right? That's right. Yeah. I think it also highlights depending on where you sit in an organization, how big it is, or maybe it doesn't even matter. But like, there's, in my mind, there's kind of like this organizational lens, which is how do I create a broader ecosystem or environment for my people to do well? And then you kind of get this team lens, which is like, okay, now how do I build a high performing team based around their goals, their desired outcomes? And then you get this individualized piece, which is where a lot of our coaching comes in, right? It's like, you're, you're looking at the org lens, you're looking at a team lens or multiple teams and how they overlap and, and partner. And then you get this individual lens because what Adam needs to perform at his peak versus what Regan or Ben needs could be quite different, right? Your, your blind spots, your strengths, your interests, your career trajectory, but um, finding ways as a leader to create flexibility or autonomy for those differences is, is, is really cool. And I think, I think all the stuff we're talking about is, is spot on. And then I think the reality hits people where they're like, you know, if you're a leader in that role, you're like, shit, there's a lot of work that has to get done. Like I, I, there's so much just stuff to be done. And, and a lot of it has nothing to do with actually doing quote unquote real work. It's like all the people stuff and the messaging and the system creation and the, the, um, impediment removal. And, 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 and I really think that's where people should spend their time. And I think they default into spending their time tackling their to-do list because it feels more execution oriented and maybe a bit more tangible and i think they get that little dopamine hit for getting a few things done and they feel quote unquote productive when in fact they might just be busy not productive i think that's a big difference yeah and you know uh, i was thinking as you were talking regan about um intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation right like as a leader you know and i i can be and i was right in my in my late 30s in my early 40s i was very focused on title, money, stock options, right? And that was what was driving me. And when you when you look at these equations and you look at how these companies work, right? You 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 don't want to be doing the deep work, right? You want to be avoiding the deep work. You want to be doing you know the flat the flashy right uh, project and the results, and then you've got to market the shit out of these results and get to your next job and up you go the la- up the ladder you go. Now, you know, at some point in me, the intrinsic piece came out and, and is so much more fulfilling. Right? Uh, it's so much, it, it, it uh, resonates so much deeper inside of me, right? This idea of committing myself to, you know, helping, like you said, individuals, teams, the entire system become more productive through greater happiness and fulfillment. Now, you take that mindset, right? The, the kind of the career 
you know, stepping stones really don't matter. It's your work, right? Well, well, how do you do your work? Well, you you can do it inside the companies. You can do it outside the companies. You can do it as a consultant. You can do it as a coach. You can write. It's the work. That's what really matters. I totally agree. Love it. And I think the question that I just posed, and I'm not looking for necessarily an answer, is just like, how do you tell the 28 to 35-year-old Ben Edwards, like, bro, don't worry about the title. Don't worry about the pay. It's about, you know, do good work, it, it, you know, not in a cheesy way, but it's like, it's, it's, that's what I mean when you're a leader with that servant leadership mindset in an organization, when everything around you is about chasing that next shiny object, marketing internally the shit out of your successes, making sure that you get the gold star and the badge and the tap on the back, because that's how promos work, making sure you're getting a five out of five on your peer reviews, whatever it is. Like there's a whole system that's set up to kind of go against that. And it is a leap of faith, but I, I think it's what it will take to create organizations that are going to stand the test of time, retain their people, and honestly get the most out of their people. Ben, before you answer that question, is it is it telling the 28-year-old Ben Edwards that, or is it asking the 28 Ben Edwards, what's important to you about the title? What's important to you about the money, the stock options? What are you really looking for there? Yeah. To help them do and understand the deeper self and maybe get to that intrinsic place a little quicker. Yeah. I think I could have, I could have done potentially gotten a little there a little quicker. You know, it's funny when you, when you look at lives and how lives, you know, um, roll out, you know, some of us learn this uh, kind of these kinds of lessons, like when we're 15, you know, and some of us don't learn them at all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, uh, it's a funny business, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, yeah. No, there's no shortage, I would say, of like need for it. I think we have a lot of uh, job security because organizations aren't going anywhere. And uh, we got a lot of people filling them that need a lot of help and support. And, um, <laughs> I think work for a lot of people, even if they don't realize it, is kind of a, it's a hostile environment at times. I mean, you, you, if you think about how much time you, you, you're sleeping and how much time you're at work, it's, it's a vast majority of like your time on earth is spent with your eyes closed and, or, or maybe not for some of us, tossing and turning, Adam Odosky, um, yep. and, and at work. And if, if we, again, not to not sound too cheesy, can, can make organizations just that much better for people, more conducive for them to get the fulfillment, for them to be empowered, to gain that happiness, to be more productive. I mean, I firmly believe that we're revolutionizing and changing the world in massive and impactful ways if we're able to do that. And honestly, that's just what gets me out of bed every day. I, I go to bed at night and wake up in the morning feeling really good about the like challenge and the work and there's no shortage of it, that's for sure. Yeah, totally, totally. For me, I think you know when I look back, and for me, it was like this. And I have, I have clients who have exactly the same metaphor. It's like the hamster on the wheel, right? I was a hamster on a wheel, right, uh, in my forties. You know, here I go, like, and and you know, there was all this success, you know, Audis and stock options, and you know, a nice house, and you know, a fancy title, and you know, armies of IBMers to command, <laughs> right? Um, and, and yet, that's how I felt. I was, I was just like, you know, 
not going anywhere except round and round and round and getting exhausted. So it, it's, yeah, it's just a different way of being in the world, I think. Ben, I am wondering, you started full sequence, you're writing the bearings stuff. Bring us up to kind of the, the current state of affairs. I'd love to make sure that people know, A, how to track you down and, and, and how to get a hold of you, and also what's kind of piquing your interest right now and, and where you're headed kind of moving forward. So about five years ago, a little bit more, I, I uh, gave up the uh, corporate uh, career, that portion of my life, and I strongly feel that that's not going to return. And I uh, set up my own company. And uh, I, I actually recently learned uh, a word for what I do. It's called portfolio. I have a portfolio career, meaning that I do lots of different things, right? Um, I do consulting, and um, my consulting is really in the, at the nexus of marketing, sales, and technology. And it's about the things we talked about. It's about building and creating environments where chain, you know, change can accelerate, where small you know, um, autonomous teams can thrive and um, be productive. You know, and it's consulting, and there's quite a bit of coaching that goes into that as well. Uh, I loved your thing you were talking about, Regan. I have exactly the same in my head about leadership teams and individuals. And that's how I think of the consulting I attach to the coaching is uh, coaching needs to happen at all those levels, right? We, we need to coach leadership um, and we need to coach teams into existence and into productivity and into performance and into peak performance. And we need to coach individuals, how they fit into the team or how outside of a team they support a team. I have what I call a private a coaching practice where, you know, I coach all sorts of different people. I think my youngest is right now is about 30 and my oldest is 73. I have, I have unemployed and I have CEOs. Um, it's sort of like a, an eclectic mix. <laughs> uh, I work with you guys on coaching. I, I love that work as well. The executive leadership development stuff, um, learning a lot there. And uh, I write, I write professionally uh i do i do um brand writing marketing white papers that kind of stuff i enjoy that kind of reviving some old skills from back in the day there and uh yeah and i love i love the writing i do uh with uh, my newsletter and other kind of outlets the newsletter has been a real project from the heart you know and that's kind of like taking me into this sort of new areas I'm very interested in men uh, and coaching men, men's groups. I'm going on a couple of men's retreats uh, this year. I'm booking myself into one. Uh, we're going to be hiking the Tetons and uh, doing yoga and meditation, and just bringing issues that we have, right, in our lives, you know, family, divorce, career, whatever it is, right, and talking with each other as men, uh, around the campfire. <laughs> um, I'm very interested in that. Uh, and then I'm just about to start a couple of years training in Gestalt therapy, which is uh, a kind of a philosophy of therapy about human wholeness. It's sort of this idea of a lot of our resistance. You know, we naturally want to grow as human beings. Uh, we're naturally growthful. We're organic, right? You know, we're life. Uh, and uh, we get into trouble often when we get stuck, when, when our growth processes inside us are blocked. And 
Gestalt therapy and Gestalt practice is about really uh, integrating ourselves, becoming more whole, right? The parts of us that we neglect or that we don't understand or that we ignore or that we dislike or that we want to get rid of. Uh, so it's about sort of raising uh, awareness of those parts of ourselves and integrating them better into us. And it's often the conflict between those parts that, you know, that we think we want to be and that we don't want to be uh, that get in the way of our natural growth. So, so I'm looking forward to that too. How, how do people find you, Ben, if they want to talk to you? Oh, yeah. So, well, I'm on LinkedIn, Ben, uh, ben Edwards on LinkedIn. Um, you can Google IBM or Full Sequence or any of the other things we talked about. BenBEdwards at gmail.com and Bearings.life is the newsletter. If you'd like to check that out as well, I write one a week and um, I've been doing it since May. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. It's been a fun project. I've enjoyed getting your 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 bearings posts, and uh, I love the discipline of ensuring you get it out there once a week, regardless of length. Right? Sometimes they're brief and to the point, and others are more verbose. But it's been it's been a pleasure to kind of track that. And Ben, it's um, it has been an awesome conversation. We're thrilled to have you as part of the the crew, and and look forward to continuing to you know get support from you, support you any way we can. And I would love to partner with you a bit more this year on some of the creative writing stuff, I, either in practice or in just kind of helping prepare me to do that kind of weekly cadence. That's something that's a growth area. I really Let's do it, sure. Regan. Yeah. I, that, that, that weekly commitment made a big, made a big difference, right? You know, getting to that point, Adam, you and I talked about commitment, right? Getting to that point where, yeah, I'm ready. I'm all in. I'm going to do this once a week. And whether I feel like it or not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think for anybody listening that, that committing to something and being consistent with that commitment yeah. will change your life. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. That's the discipline right there, man. That's it. <laughs> hey, speaking of commitment, Adam, just in closing, did you end up signing up for the Mob 240? Yes or no? Okay. So I'll, I'll make the announcement here today. We are Jeff, Aaron, and I were texting this morning. Uh, Aaron is going to pace. Jeff is in and I'm going to, I'm going to run it with Jeff. So that will be oh, hang on, a, bit of, a bit of role reversal then, right? Yeah. A little bit of role reversal for Jeff and Aaron. And then I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for the race and run it with Jeff. And, uh, six weeks before Moab, I'm going to do the Bigfoot 200. So it'll be two back-to-back 200s for me this year. Lordy. Boom. <laughs> Boom. That also means, Regan, that I think you may have committed to pacing. I said that I would, uh, if you signed up, I would do a leg of that yeah. and, and pace you. And Adam kindly was like, I know exactly the leg that yeah. it's going to be, and it's only 70 miles. I'm like, only what? 70 miles. <laughs> Regan, you and I have a lot to talk yeah, about. Plenty of time on that leg to, to talk yeah. about all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So. Hey, Ben, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your busy schedule. We really, really appreciate it. Reach out anytime. We wish you the best in all of your endeavors. And uh, Adam, always a pleasure to have you as my co-pilot in this thing. So thank you so much. And any other closing thoughts or, or, or words from you, Ben? No, just uh, I really enjoyed it as well, Regan and Adam. So it's been great hanging out with you guys. You're amazing. Good luck with everything and have a fabulous afternoon. Thank you. Bye, guys.